Welcome back, everybody, to the Shock Absorber podcast. It is wonderful to have you along with us, whether you're on your favourite podcast app or watching us on YouTube. And I'm joined, as usual, by my two favourite guys. <laughs> <laughs> Does that exclude? Yeah. <laughs> well, anyone else who hasn't been on, who's been on, really. <laughs> Sorry, guys. There was that guy we tried in the beta episode, but yeah, we, we lost the episode. We yeah. cut that one out. Yeah, that's right. That's the deleted. There is, there is one deleted Shock Absorber episode, oh. but we won't know, we will not reveal. Mm, what happened on that one? <laughs> anyway, it was probably just really bad. Uh, welcome, <laughs> Stu and Tim. How are you feeling? Good. We're um, doing a bit of arts and crafts, or just crafts. Is it crafts or art? Uh, yes, craft. It's craft. Craft. Yeah, we're crafting. We're making Jesus beads. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Stu, you ordered how many of these? Five hundred. And then yeah. they, they turned out a little bit smaller <laughs> than we expected. <laughs> However, we've come up with a solution as we're making them. That uh, if you do three in a row, it'll look a lot bigger. Yeah, so they, they're kind of like Jesus beads for ants. <laughs> but the reason is, my very good friend Christine, who gave me these beads, yes. who's, who's um, she was one of my bridesmaids. Your bridesmaids? Yeah, well, not my yeah. bridesmaids. She was in your bridesmaids. My yeah, wife's yeah. bridesmaids. <laughs> yeah, you're in the anyway, body. she's a very dear friend. She has a fantastic bead shop. And uh, anyway, so I said, oh, we're doing a new take on the Jesus beads, Christine. Give us some thoughts. And she sent us these sort of like micro ones. Micro really beads. Really little beads like mm. this. And everyone's been laughing going, they're a bit smaller than usual. <laughs> but I think it's intentional. I think that's oh. cool. Yeah, I think so. God's hand was on the situation. Maybe. <laughs> that Joel, with his... Uh, Suburban lens has put three of them together so to make them look. Oh, a bit that bigger. was actually but your son actually, Ethan's idea, but yeah. Well, I got told that I was suburban today, so that's why I thought I'd try it out on you. See how you responded how to you, it. How suburban are you? Oh, apparently, I. What did Braden call me? Because I'm wearing a shark's jumper. I think he called me. It wasn't 100 percent Shire, but it was something like that. He reckons I was like 100 percent Shire or something. Oh, because you're wearing sharks and I'm wearing a shark's jumper. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So maybe well, that's um, where it what came from. Tim, how are you travelling there with your Jesus beads? Yeah, I managed to um, put mine together. I only use one of each colour. Okay. So I've got the gone for the subtle approach. The yeah, the um yeah, the subtle. The version. Summer Hill approach, I like to call it. The Summer Hill approach. Mm, okay. Rather right. than the Summer Shire approach of right. Joel over here. <laughs> yeah, I'm so hundred percent Shire. Just like you, Stu. Um I was born in the Shire, so I suppose I am hundred percent Shire. I, yeah, I was not. Yeah, there you go. So, so I am hundred percent Shire. Yes. I was born in Canberra. There you go. Cap- mm. Nation's capital. Nation's capital, yep. As I'm a capital guy. Um, <laughs> how do you... Uh, so why are we... <laughs> Sorry. It's so bad it was good. <laughs> I'm at a top shelf. Um, top shelf. Top shelf capital. Uh, why are we making Jesus beads? Well, we're relaunching the Jesus beads this weekend. Uh, once a term at Soul Revival, we have a thing called the Commitments Week where we encourage committed Christians in their discipleship and their evangelism. Mm. And back in the day, as we've said on previous podcasts, we used to have Jesus beads that we gave out to the teenagers and the kids at church. And we've been thinking for a few years, so it might be pretty cool if we have a version of Jesus beads that adults might be able to use for their gospel presentation as well. So this weekend, we're launching the new Jesus beads to the whole church in an intergenerational approach, which we... I'm not going to say to everyone you have to wear them, but hopefully some people might like to and give us feedback. So I reckon they're a great tool. Mm. And <clears throat> well, I think that was the thing we were also talking about. And even was it last week? There was the simplicity of explaining the gospel to someone, which yeah. makes it really easy. Yeah. You were saying earlier today that, <coughs> excuse me, uh, that 
you wanted to see if we can use the tool to explain the gospel in five sentences. Do you yeah. think we have yeah. we have succeeded? Yeah, well, th- this would be really interesting to see if our viewers and listeners would be interested in uh, feeding back to us what we think. We've had a the, so the Jesus beads are pretty old, so they go mm-hmm. back to the seventies. We didn't come up with them; someone in yep. America, I think, came up with them. But the idea was that it'd be a really simple way to share the gospel without words, just to show people, well, not without words, but to have a visual representation of the different parts of what the Bible teaches. And so, the Jesus beads. Uh, or the colours, uh, Jesus colours sometimes. But there was a, a, a book that was... A wordless book? Yeah, that one. That's yeah. the one I was trying to remember. That's why I came up with a wordless thing. What's a wordless book? Well, they had a, they had a booklet that they produced in the 70s that just oh. had the different colour for each page. And I think it was meant to, to be that the person who shared the book knew what the content of the book was, but it was oh. a, I think it was meant to be enigmatic. So that people would go, oh, that's interesting. So you like ca- carry it around. Yeah, so they're so like, what are you reading right now? Yeah, oh, I'm reading this book with no words. <laughs> so yeah, it's a bit different. But <laughs> anyway, we didn't quite go that far. But what we've found really helpful is, oh, just a real quick recap. Back back in the mid-90s, I had a couple of teenagers from our youth group come up with these Jesus beads on, they called them. And it was yellow. Back in the day, it was yellow, white, black. Sorry, I'll go again. Green, mm-hmm. white, black, yellow, Oh, well, you've missed the red. Green, white, white, black, red, red, yellow. Thank you. And different denominations and churches put different, you know, slants on it. Sometimes people put blue in there for baptism and stuff like that. But these original beads they explained to me were uh, representing what the Bible teaches about Jesus. So we use those, and it's just a little gospel presentation that you could remember with a few sentences as you were saying, and uh, we ended up, it was unreal actually, because we ended up doing these Jesus beads for all the teenagers and they all wore them to school and their friends would say to them, what's with the beads? And we found that it was the only tool that we'd heard of where non-Christian people actually ask you to tell them the gospel because all the other tools, you've got to ask them to a course or you know, you, you have a kind of outline prepared in your head and you repeat it back to them. But this one... It, it was really easy for Christians to just give the gospel in about five sentences and then to uh, basically have a conversation about faith. And there were instances where young people shared their faith from the Jesus beads and people became Christians during that conversation. Mm. It was amazing. So that was really exciting. Yeah. It also empowered Christians to feel like they had a good gospel outline that they could share. Because I remember when I was growing up as a teenager, when someone said, what's the gospel? I didn't want to say anything in case I got it wrong. Uh, So it was good for kids to have an idea of how to share the gospel. But it was also a bit of a fun identity thing as well. Like Christians could wear the Jesus beads and be encouraged seeing other people wearing them. And people saw all these young crew wearing beads, so they're like, oh, what's going on with that? Mm. Anyway, that sort of ebbed and flowed over the years. We haven't actually done much with it. I think our kids in our kids' ministry did some Jesus beads while we've been Sorrel Bible Church. Pretty recently. Yeah, Yeah, both the kids and the youth, I think, have both sort of used colours. And we used the – we did talk about colours of life at one point in the last 10 years, and we've – we made some videos. Uh, oh, that's right, we did too, yeah. Joy made the little set piece with the triangles. Yeah, and yeah. Things. So, yeah, we played around with it a little bit. Uh, yeah, but it hasn't yeah. been a, a strong emphasis of let's you know, intentionally do, do this yeah. all together as a church. Yeah, so when, when we talk as a church about how we partner with Jesus, we like to say that we share the truth and love of Jesus to anyone, anywhere. 
And the thing about that, though, is are we doing that? Uh, you know, that's our aspiration. And so this term, we're launching a term of seeing if we could raise um, a team of personal evangelists, but also just equip everybody to be able to share their faith. So coming full circle back to your question about what the actual outline is, um, the, the thing we did have modified from the early days is in the early days we used to have a white and a black bead, and now we have a white and a grey bead. The reason we've done that is... There've been um, there's been a bit of pushback by some uh, progressive Christians and maybe some others as well <coughs> that um, have called the Jesus beads racist, which kind of confused me when I first heard it because uh, I I'd never thought of it like that. And as as we've talked with our Aboriginal friends about the Jesus beads, they've always understood white and black representing light and darkness. And uh, but some people are. I suppose um, suggesting could could white be seen as good and black be seen as bad, and that might have a racial overtone. So we thought maybe we'll just get uh, rid of the problem by introducing a grey bead instead of a black bead, and then we have uh, light and grey uh, instead. So um, I'll go through it and you tell me what you think. Yep. Um, the idea is you take these colours and you see if you can uh, weave a gospel message based on a verse. So the first verse we've played around is John 3.16, which is pretty famous, which is, either of you guys want to say it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. glad that Tim did it because I wouldn't have been a... Okay. <laughs> there you go. Oh, sorry about that. Well, based on that one, this is the presentation. So green, God created everything. White, God made us to be his friends. Grey, we rejected God. Red, Jesus died on the cross so that we could be friends with God again. Yellow, if we believe in Jesus, we get to go to heaven and be with God. Mm. And I so think, that's that one. I so think that's really easy to remember. I, I and, think it's a good one. And because you, you, it needs to be in that order too, like it has to go in the coloured order, mm. it's easy to remember those five simple sentences mm. that you were, you're just talking about there. Yeah, well that, that comes off the back of a question, right? So mm. say someone who's not a Christian uh, says, oh, what's, what's with the beads? And you could say, oh, well, they're beads I got at church and we call them Jesus beads. And they represent the story of Jesus. And then you, often, not always, but sometimes people go, oh, okay, that's interesting. But sometimes they go, oh, so what do the colours represent? And then you can tell them the gospel. Mm. And then that can start an interesting conversation because you can say that God created everything, for example, as a start. And they can say, what, you actually believe God created everything? Like, do people still believe that? Or mm. they might get hung up at a different point. They might say... Jesus, why did Jesus have to die on a cross so we could be friends with him again? So the idea is it creates a conversation that you can have a conversation with. So each of the beads, a child could remember that. So you can use them in kids' ministry. A youth could remember that. Mm -hmm. But also as people become more familiar with it, they're actually able to engage with what people might talk about. So what does it, be, what does it mean to, that God made us to be his friends? Well, he made us to have a relationship with him. Uh, a different kind of friendship to we have with each other because God is God and so he's our king and so to be friends with God is to see him as king and to worship him and to live life his way and the reason we make that bead white is the word of God gives a light to our path so you know there's some really cool things that you can vibe off that mm. and the, the one with the, like moving to the grey zone well, the, we're using the grey bead, but that helps with the grey zone do you want to explain just to think about how the grey zone yeah so works? it used to be a black bead Black was rejected God. Uh, but the grey zone is interesting because the idea of black was just representing darkness that 
we can't see God anymore. So the idea is when the light's on, we could see God. We're friends with him. But when because we've sinned and rejected God, we can't see the value of his word anymore. Mm. And so the grey one, we sort of thought, well, yeah, does it sort of compromise the theological idea of darkness? Because that's really quite prevalent in, in the, mm. the scriptures. And like the presence of sin in the world. And, yeah, yeah, but what we thought is there's a presence of sin in the world but God hasn't withdrawn his light from the world. So for us, we're quite comfortable to say we live in a grey zone. But what's good about the third bead, the grey bead, is sometimes people go, oh, but I don't believe in God. And it's easy to say, well, yeah, because you're in the grey zone. That's right. That's what the Bible says. If you, if you don't have, uh, if you don't have um, the Holy Spirit enlighten you and help you to believe, then, you, yeah, you, you, and you don't hear the gospel and feel convicted to respond then um bible says in ephesians 2 that we're dead in our transgressions and sin uh but even though we're dead in our transgressions and sin god hasn't you know taken his light out of the world and so in the third bead we could even say uh the story of how god raised up abraham and how he called the people of israel to be a light but they failed in that and then jesus came along from the people of israel and he lived perfect life like the Israelites couldn't live and he obeyed the Ten Commandments. So, so there's a whole heap of stuff to riff off, which I really like personally. Mm. Uh, so for people who like a really clear outline, you can actually unpack each of those beads with another few subpoints, so that people can memorise them if that's their thing. But I like to be a bit more organic and just talk about it that way. So just kind of riff off what people ask, ask you or yeah, the thoughts around yep. it. Or, you know, if I know the person I'm talking to, if someone's got an issue with identity, then I might... Um, focus a bit more on the green bead to start off with that God mm. made everything and mm. he made us to be in the image in his image, image. Yep. so to or the white one actually to to be made his friends is to walk in the light of his word um, we used to know him and mm. that's a that's a really cool thing so mm. yeah that white bead representing light I think is really helpful as well yeah cool uh, Tim how, how are you traveling with your beads you've made a few there yeah I've got a couple done in that time mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I'm going well. <laughs> I did ask you before we started recording, did you want me to pay attention to the conversation or the beating? I don't and know. I, 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 I'm finding it hard to multitask. I was, oh, I was trying to <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, just uh, make it like a, you know, an, an arts and crafts session that you can just talk at the same time. But yeah. you do have to concentrate with these beads. I'm finding I have to, but that might just be my limited oh. attention span. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> they're, looking pretty, they're looking pretty good, man. You're fairly yeah, competent at this. You've yeah, got like I agree. a – I just tied them around my wrist, but Tim's got this like bead – thing going on where you where it's adjustable oh yeah well, you, yeah the adjustable straps really important is it if you, well i mean if you want to be able to take them off and put them back on again they're the um yeah it has a vers- versatility to it it does yeah, yeah. very nice very nice i like that word versatility <laughs> yeah. yeah you like that one it's uh, quite versatile yeah. it's a very versatile it in word all, so- all sorts of contexts yeah, yep. that's true and, uh, would you describe yourself as versatile Right now, I'm not expressing a lot of versatility. <laughs> that was my point. To do, do things. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, the, while we do continue to make the Jesus bees, though, um, uh, as we like to do on this podcast, we like to talk about things that we're all, like currently thinking of, and rather just not just saying, "Hey, we have all the right answers. This is how you should do it." Mm. Like we're actually kind of. I was thinking about this the other day. I really enjoy YouTube videos of like people in business documenting how they're doing things. Yeah, so right. I think that we're kind of doing a similar thing okay. on this podcast, yeah, which right. is fun. Well, I think I think that anyway. Um, but uh, uh, something that we talked about prior to going on a week away was, um, should you raise something about um, starting uh, more youth groups, mm. possibly to grow a church yep. or, or a particular yep. gathering. But one thing that you said in the um, 
in the staff meeting that we had today, just we were just batting around a few ideas, I think, and you said um, uh, that when you when you have a youth group, the leaders uh, you could start with the leaders having the mindset or the idea that the kids aren't going to come along to the actual night. So even if the leaders are just there, then that's a success. Mm. Why did you say that? Because that struck me and then I'm like, oh yeah, well that's how we actually do ministry here a lot mm. of the time, especially with our youth ministry. But why, why did you actually say that? Yeah, I remember uh, <laughs> when I was a teenager witnessing a number of tries of the church to get the youth group going. And sometimes there'd be an underwhelming plug and an overwhelming plug. So sometimes <laughs> people would make a big deal of it. I remember one time the church said that there was going to be a big rodeo at church to come along and check it out. Oh, and as in like a mechanical bull and all that kind of thing? Well, we didn't know. It was just a rodeo. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we were told it was a rodeo. And then someone even went to school and announced a rodeo at Geimer Anglican Church. Wow. And... Uh, the idea was to have a bull, but um, there, there was a few kids that rocked up expecting to see some lassoing and some horses. So they were, <laughs> yeah. they were a bit, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> That's disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, that wasn't any fault of the leadership. Like, they were great leaders. And they were, you know, I was part of the, I was a junior member of the leadership at the time. And so I was part of that as well. But that was an example of something that some people, had a big expectation of mm. that when they got there, obviously there wasn't going to be a rodeo at Gomering looking car park. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been pretty good. In the though. late 1980s, early 90s, whenever <laughs> it was. Would have been. Would have been unreal. Yeah. But, um, so that's, that's something that's been in the back of my mind. Uh, so the other, the other side of it, and being too underwhelming is making it sound like it's not even interesting to go to. I've also seen pictures like that where people go, oh, you know, youth group's on if you want to come. Yeah. Um, or you've got nothing else on. You probably won't want to. But yep. so, so that's also another extreme. But mm -hmm. what, what I like to think about um, when we think of youth ministry is it's really hard to start a youth group when you don't have many kids or, or any kids. Uh, and... It's hard if you don't have enough leaders or if you've only got a few leaders, all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. We were in that situation in the early 90s because I, I was the only youth leader of this new group I'd been asked to lead for year 10 to 12 teenagers. And there was only two teenagers at the church in that age group, which was a good start. Some churches don't even have that. So, you know, that was great. But um, I did have a couple of first year uni grads uh, first year uni students who I asked to come along and help and my then girlfriend who became a wife Lou and as we for six months we tried to pitch this youth group and we oscillated between over pitching it and under pitching it but nothing we could do really talked anybody into coming uh, very much and so after ages we sort of thought we're not getting anywhere with this so maybe we'll open the bible and see what the bible has to say about how we should be doing youth group and we came across matthew 22 37 to 40 and none of us had really been trained how to read the bible properly so we were just flicking around passages and we came across matthew 22 and in that jesus says love the lord your god with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself and the two things that really struck us was the way we heard that back then was you know be willing to give god your best and your first when really all we were doing was giving god what was left over after we'd gone to 
uni, gone to work, gone to church, hung out with our friends. If we had a bit of extra time, we'd help with youth group. So it was kind of low priority. So maybe we were heading towards the underwhelming end of the spectrum, I suppose, even though we were trying to pitch it. And so we sort of started thinking, maybe we've got to give God our best, not our second best. And the other thing that really struck us, and this is just, again, how we read it back in the day, was love your neighbour as yourself. That was big core because we thought we don't even really love each other. We're just sort of pleasant strangers with each other. We're kind of not even friends. We wouldn't call ourselves friends. We're just a group of leaders who volunteered for this thing. And then as we thought about that, we thought, why would the... Why would the teenagers want to come to watch us give God what is second and then not really care about each other? We weren't really modelling what we were teaching. So we could teach them all these great ideals of Jesus said when asked, you know, who's his neighbour, he told the story of the Good Samaritan about how some Samaritan guy saved a guy who got beaten up, you know, that story. and. Yep. You know, that's a good example of loving everybody, not just people who are like yourself. But then when they turned around and looked at us leaders, we weren't actually living that out in any observable way. So we thought to ourselves, what about if instead of running a youth group, we were a peer group? And the peer group was based on Jesus. In John fifteen fifteen, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, I call you my friends, if you do what I say, which is love one another. So he says in, in Matthew 22, love God and love others. And the way you love others is you love everybody. And, you know, Jesus teaches us to be sacrificial with our love, you know, to serve, not just pick people who are like ourselves. Mm. So then we thought, well, maybe the, the good place to start in starting a youth group is to build a really strong group of friends amongst the youth leaders that was based on Christian friendship, not just based on surfing together or sport or going to the movies or hanging around each other's houses, but we're actually going to read the Bible together and we we're going to hang out. So... We, we started saying, why don't we actually give God our best? And so back in our early 20s, the best thing we could give God was Saturday night, actually, because that was our best night of the week. So we decided to start meeting as a group of friends on Saturday night and then running the youth group on Friday night. So the teenagers could come on Friday night, see us being a group of friends, and then if they were keen to join that, then they could grow up and become friends with us on Saturday night after they hit senior high and then and then graduate out of high school so so the way we sort of then expressed that practically week to week was we would run the youth group on a friday night as a group of friends because we wanted to hang out with jesus and we wanted to hang out with each other and so we read the bible and we hung out with each other and had fun and we found that that created a non-anxious presence as we ran the youth group that all of a sudden we weren't operating with a chip on our shoulder expecting no one would like us so we just assumed they wouldn't so we uh, were underwhelming or we didn't also try and hype it up to such an extent that we wanted to create this artificial excitement for something that was actually a lot less than what we were kind of saying so we thought wouldn't it be cool if we um, were a group of mates and we hung out every Friday night and we read the Bible together and if any of the kids come that's a bonus. So it's not that we didn't want them to come or we didn't care if they didn't come. It was just like, let's have fun reading the Bible and hanging out and let's do that so that if the kids come, we include them in that. And it was just a great mind shift for us because when kids did start coming along, they could see we were super into it. And it was before the the coining of the term FOMO, but teenagers kind of came because they had FOMO because they saw us having so much fun and reading the Bible and growing and having such a good friendship group. They wanted to be a part of that. And so it's just a different way of thinking about youth groups. So if you've only got a few kids coming along, it can get super discouraging and quite tiring 
trying to turn up every week and turn it up to 11 or turn up every week and just going, oh, I'm not heaps stoked. I don't know, is anyone else heaps stoked? So, yeah, I find it a really easy way to start a youth group because actually starting a youth group can take years. It's not just necessarily a put this program in place and all these kids will come. It can actually be a long grind. And if you've got one boy in year seven and three girls in year 10 and you're trying to turn that into a youth group, it's almost impossible. Um, with any program you use but if they're coming to be a part of a friendship group where there are young adult men and women if you're blessed enough to have some young adult men and women and maybe even some people in their 30s and and 40s as well coming along and being friends in appropriate ways and having fun on a Friday night in a way that's accessible for teenagers they actually come because we're their leaders first and their friends second but we actually include them in the life of the group and they can become a committed member of the group and just be part of this friendship group. So mm. I hope that's a bit simple explanation, but that's yeah. sort of what it's, I'm thinking. Well, it's interesting that you're saying that, and I know that's kind of informed how we've done youth ministry, especially here at church. Mm. Uh, that was my experience is like, like so I had three male leaders yep. in, in that led my year and I'm like, they're all friends. Yeah. Like they all get on really well with each other. And then to You saw that, did you? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. so. I I've maybe maybe I'm more like looking back on it now, I can see that. But also, uh, it was like they spend they want to spend time with me. Yeah. Like that's yeah. the other thing. But yeah, they want they cool. want to spend time they're they're like we're they're they're working together in a way that like, yeah, we trust each other. Yeah. We want to be part of this. Yeah. But then also, oh, they want me to keep coming. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, that, that's right. That was yeah, the, the right. unusual yeah. perhaps kind of cultural thing was how come people older than me want to spend time yeah, with me too? Yeah, and and if those leaders make it explicit, it's because of Jesus, mm. and because we're reading the Bible together, it takes any kind of weirdness out of it. Yeah, okay. Like if there was a bunch of young adults who were going, we really want to be friends with teenagers, you'd be like, why? Like no yeah. one else wants mm, to. That's a bit odd. Yep. You know what I mean? But if you are a teenager and you see a bunch of young adults who love surfing, and they're great at it, they love it, they get stoked on it, and they include you in that activity. And through that, you actually become friends. That's actually quite different. It's not weird at all. Um, and if if you think about it, if there's a group of people getting together to have a read of the Bible and then to have a pizza together and just hang out and encourage each other, that is a task that is different to surfing, but it's actually, it's got boundaries, it has definition, and it has sustainability, mm. and it actually is explicit in its relational clarity. And because it's explicit in its relational clarity, it means that there's less likelihood of people wondering, oh, what's actually the catch to this? What are people trying to get me to come to this for? And if the leaders aren't even actually trying to get them to come, it's actually just leaders hanging out with some Christian kids, asking the Christian kids to ask their friends. Maybe some of the leaders are going to scripture or they're doing some kind of lunchtime group at the school or Mm. they've got some friends in the family who are younger, like nephews or nieces, or there's even grandkids that are, are good mm. mates. You know, there's there's a lot of ways to kind of relationally um, build something out of nothing when it would be almost impossible if there wasn't that core group of leaders that was actually the gathering point. And setting the culture of the yeah, place. Yeah, because there's no way we can compete with the world. Like, we, yeah. we can't do anything as well as the world and we don't have the money and yeah, particularly smaller them. churches can't pardon? we can't pay them to turn no up. <laughs> no that's right yeah and we're not we're not sort of getting them to come watch a, a sporting match or a there's not a an attractional thing mm. although you know some churches try and make their music on a friday night so attractional the kids will come for that 
but I I think that with the increase in the internet and computers and stuff, there's more and more kids that just would rather stay home and play on the internet, mm. to be honest, play computer games against their friends online from their own homes. So I think to have some kind of relational base to it, sorry, a biblical base to it, but a relational outcome mm-hmm. is really kind of new and exciting. Mm. Um, one of the biggest problems in our society today is loneliness and it's only increasing. And so the Christian church is a terrific place to offer relationships to people that are that are other person-centered and yep. they're holistic and they're accountable and there's um, a great deal of sp- scope for personal growth within the context of those spaces. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's a really exciting way to do youth ministry. Mm. Tim, is a dangerous question. Uh, did you hear what she said? I did, actually. <laughs> While yeah. you're making your beats. Um, um, what, do you, what do you think? Because do you think it takes the pressure off having, like, if you if you start a youth group and you're like, we've got to have kids to come, we've got to make sure the children are coming, we've got to make sure they're coming, but instead, but instead we're focusing on the leadership team first and they're being committed. And then do you think that takes the pressure off the youth group having to establish immediately? It certainly does. It absolutely takes the pressure off. The one thing that was really interesting that struck me was that idea of uh, having a non-anxious presence in the leadership team and the fact that, so when you do invite teenagers to come and be present, uh, you want them to be there, you're joyful that they are there and you don't need them to be there. Yeah, the expectations. Yeah, and I think that the intersection between those three things, uh, and we'd lovely to do some some more thinking and actually think about the you know, family systems theory and non-anxious presence and those kinds of things. So I think there's, there might be some explanatory power there to understand why that actually helps. But I, certainly I feel that the... Uh, I, yeah, as I said, we love you. We want you to be here. We've got um, a, something to communicate to you and we don't need you uh, in a really you know, gentle kind of way. Yeah. Um, does take that pressure off. And it takes the pressure off the leadership team to feel like, you know, this is a failure because they've got no one turning up. But if you sit around with a couple of other young adults, pray for teenagers in your suburb mm, uh, and read the Bible together and enjoy hanging out, that's awesome. Like, that's that's brilliant. And when teenagers come, you're just welcoming them into that mm. group. And I think that what it also does is it's a, it's a protective factor against... Um, doing a product of youth ministry that I need to uh, sell something and, and I need a consumer to do it. It's just, no, we're, we're engaging in community and we're inviting you into this, which also means that the teenager themselves is not a, um, I don't know, they're not, a, they're not a target, they're not a customer that you're trying to communicate. They're just a welcome part of that community. I think the highlighting that relational aspect as well um, is really, really helpful. The other thing that I was just wondering was, you know, I don't want to over-exegete or... Eise, what's the opposite of exegesis? Eisegesis? Yeah, into Jesus. Um, Joel shaking his head. Um, <laughs> but I just think about the way that... We, we just started a series on parables at church. Yeah. And one of the really curious things about the reason Jesus says for why he gives parables is because they're actually intended to be tricky. Yeah. Like they're actually intended yeah. to get you to think. Get yeah. you to think, which also means uh, in a non anxious way, Jesus is mm. okay if people don't understand. He he puts the offer out there. 
Uh, of course, Jesus' whole mission is to seek and save the lost. So he does have an agenda. He's going out there. He's seeking out those who are, you know, are sinful. Are you know, he, he talks about being a doctor to the sick. But also, if people listen to his parable and walk away, he doesn't seem to fret over that. Okay. There's not an anxiety that... It's actually a judgment from him, isn't there? The, the parable either saves or judges, hey? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And, and I, again, I wouldn't want to over-apply that to a youth ministry context. Oh, no, not of course. I was just yeah. thinking of the parable. No, no, I think that, that's, that's true for what Jesus does. But that idea that Jesus will tell the message of the gospel and his identity as the Son of God uh, is not contingent on those people listening interesting. Uh, and being around. And I think there is perhaps some way in which our identity as disciples of Jesus, as faithful um, members of the church, is not contingent on whether teenagers come or not. Yeah. That's between them and Jesus. Mm. And there are definitely things that we can do to be more accessible. I like that word. Like We can be more accessible to teenagers. Um, if we're only doing things that... 40-year-olds enjoy, <laughs> then the likelihood that a teenager comes and sticks around, no matter how good the community is, it's, it's an extra barrier for the teenager to get over in order to enjoy that community. So it is in these kind of age-specified ministries that we have, whether it be children's ministry or youth ministry, we are shaping activities and language and things that we do in a way that is accessible to those particular age groups. So that is important. Likewise, if you ran a youth group running games that you would play with five-year-olds and six-year-olds, you're very easily going to bore and frustrate the teenagers. So we do uh, in some way target them, but also I think I really like that idea of non-anxiousness that if they come, it's wonderful. It's a great joy. If they don't come, we can still be faithful disciples of Jesus and we can be a leadership team who loves God, love others, and seek next week to hopefully maybe have some teenagers. But, yeah, I think that's really helpful. You said that's interesting to what Tim was talking about. I was just, you got any reaction to that? Shoot. Which bit was that? Uh, the, the interesting about, um, gosh, I forget it now, but G Jesus being presence. Nope, I it's gone. <laughs> I did. I said that yeah. was interesting. Yeah. And then I'm trying to remember <laughs> what it was. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Let me ask you another question, though. <clears throat> uh, the instant you asked me the question, I just focused on how he was tying a knot and then sliding the beads down. Oh. And I tried to put the beads on that same thickness piece of string um, and I couldn't string. fit them on. And he's done many of them. He's just, he's just a production line. Yeah, if, you're not, if you're listening, Tim's like in the process of the last 20 minutes is pumping out Jesus beads. So he might actually have my children's ministry skills. All my crafting. <laughs> Thank you, Tracy McCall, for uh, teaching me in the wise ways of how to craft. Oh, very, she's very excellent at craft. I think we've shouted her, shouted her out before on the podcast. Have, um, Tim, I, I just let's bounce off this though, sorry. You spoke about family systems. What did you mean by that, if you can give us a brief? Oh, sorry. I vaguely aware somewhere on the periphery of my thinking um, of a particular theory about family. It's called family systems theory. And I don't think I understand enough to do it justice, but it, it talks about how families function. Uh, and then there's a number of theorists who have extrapolated it out to groups. Mm -hmm. um, and there are even some Christian sociologists and Christian psychologists who have tried to apply it to church contexts. That's about where my understanding of it stops. I do have some books on my shelves that I intend to read one day um, to get deeper into this. But one of the things I remember is that 
this idea of non-anxious presence, I'm fairly confident that that language comes from this family systems theory idea. And so a non-anxious presence in a system is uh, someone who can hold the anxiety of a group of a relationship without themselves taking that on and having to uh, express it themselves. So they can be there and it, the upside of someone who is in a social system that is a non-anxious presence is that they then have a calming effect on the anxiety of others. So mm, if, if you sort of insert yourself helpfully in, um, you know, a, like a family, the family might have a fight, right? And you might have um, one parent and one child is uh, getting irritated at each other because of something particular. If you have another child or another adult who can be in that system and can be a non-anxious presence in that system, they can help calm the conversation down, they can help calm the emotion going down. So that's where that language comes from, which is why mm -hmm. I was thinking about that idea. But yes, I think non-anxiety, uh, which is not naive, um, but aware of the issues in a particular system. And I guess in this case with youth ministry, it's the anxiety might come from, we really want to have teenagers in this church and we don't. And so that can create a sense of anxiety. And I, we've had these conversations with children's and youth ministers that they they desperately want people. They they look across the road and there's a massive high school, you know, in their suburb, and yet they don't have any teenagers in their church. And like, what's going on? And that that can create anxiety. And I think the Stu's language, whether intentional or not, of bringing that non-anxiousness in, I think that's really key because you have leaders who say, yeah, isn't it, it is a wonderful opportunity. And we do see the deficit in our church. We'd really love that to grow. We'd love to have teenagers in our church. But we can engage in ministry from a place of non-anxiety rather than anxiety. And I think that's really key. Mm. Yeah, and that's really interesting. <clears throat> I was thinking of like, just thinking about that family emotional process. I think, uh, what is it? I actually got ChatGBT to summarise it for us. <laughs> Nuclear family emotional system. And that's what you're talking about there. Um, my wife and I were having maybe a heated discussion about something a few weeks ago. My beautiful seven-year-old daughter just comes and goes, is everything okay? <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, yes, it's fine. Thank you. But thank you for checking. But that's, that's what I, that's a good example of that, I think, is that if we're able to, oh, excuse me, if you're able to have, that's kind of, it's almost like the leaders of the family idea of like, that's the non-anxious presence. No matter whether the kids come or not to the youth group, we can be, yeah. this non-anxious persons and for them to enter that too it helps the kids when they come yeah, as well yeah. it's good yeah it's good um the other thing that i wanted to ask you about Stu, though and these are a few things that came out of you just chatting about the work that you've done on your phd recently was um a few things around uh, uh things that you brought up perhaps in a discussion around a, a number of people about costly discipleship and yep. people being committed yeah and you said that kind of lit a bit of a fire or a bit of a, a oh, spicy was, conversation at the there time was, there was one person that in this particular meeting i was in just presenting a few things and they had a different view of discipleship to me and one of the things i was commenting on was i think that there's been some systems that we've set up in the local church that have been really good but can have shadows so i i was only saying again this morning actually that I had a lecturer at Sydney uh, uh, Sydney Missionary Bible College in Sydney in the 90s. His name was Bruce Smith and uh, he, he had this phrase that uh, everything, every good thing has shadows and creatures live in the shadows. Mm -hmm. And so he was saying that even if you do something that's really good, there's going to be some problems that 
it'll create. And so I was just reflecting on that a lot over the years. And when I looked at the way we've structured churches in suburban contexts in Australia, particularly in Sydney, um, a lot of churches that are big enough use the homogeneous unit principle if they can as a, a way to structure their church. And if you're not familiar with that system, it's basically have uh, an early morning service for the traditional oldies and then have a contemporary family service for families and then have a youth service at night for youth. So the good thing about that is it's meant to be helping people to mission and disciple people in the same age demographics because uh, in the society at large you know teenagers don't tend to hang out with adults adults don't tend to hang out with teenagers teenagers definitely don't tend to hang, hang out with their grandparents a whole heap and so the good thing is i suppose trying to create more missional and discipleship realities in that system but the downside of it is and and it's a shadow of that uh, way of doing things that I've noticed in our area of Sydney and Southern Shire is an unexpected outcome can be individualism and consumerism. Now let me explain. If I've set up a number of different ministries in the church for people and I've said to young people, when you're a child, you know, we have a ministry for you, you go to the Sunday school on the Sunday morning service and the family service and then when you get old enough, you go to the evening service when you go to the evening service, there's also a youth group for you that's designed for you as well. Well, is it possible that I've given that young Christian the impression that church is there for me and they design things for me individually so that as I go through my life, I can consume Christianity from those different viewpoints? Now, some of our listeners and viewers might find that a bit of a leap, but what I've noticed in suburban contexts is that people who go to homogeneous unit principle churches can be a bit more individualistic in their life choices and a bit more consumeristic when it comes to church. So if they're going to a church that doesn't really suit their stage of life and there's not that many young people at their church, they might look for another church with more young people their age, for example. So that's an individualistic decision that's based on a consumerable. Um, I'm not really getting what I need from this church. I might go to that church. So I presented that in a uh, paper that I put uh, to this group and I riffed off Bonhoeffer's idea of discipleship as a contrast where Bonhoeffer talks about costly discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived at a very different time. There was no homogeneous unit principle back in his day and to be a Christian for him meant that he actually went to the gallows and died for his faith. So that was quite a pronounced suffering. And But in his framework, discipleship is costly and so he would point to jesus picking up his cross and carrying it and then encouraging us to do the same thing various other things like that so off the back of that in my paper i presented that in our youth ministry instead of trying to create youth ministry as a consumeristic individualistic consumerable that what we're trying to do is give young people an opportunity to serve and to have input and actually use the gifts that the Holy Spirit had equipped them with to actually help in the body of Christ. And as pastors, we were trying to raise up people as members of the body to to do that. And in a very time-poor culture that we have, to actually help in a group is actually sacrificial. So people tend to not want to have too many responsibilities at church because they've got other things they've got to do with their life. So, But it was interesting. I just had, I just had one feedback from someone who said, oh, that's the problem with the church today. We make it to be... Uh, too negative we've got to sell the positives of christianity and stop uh just talking about the negative so that was where that comment came from is that because they were thinking that 
if we say it's going to be hard to be a Christian, then they're not going to be. It's not going to find it. They're not going to find Christianity appealing. Yeah, I, I think the sense. And again, I didn't spend heaps of time talking about it with this person, but mm. the feedback was. Um, Discipleship is so much more exciting and delightful than that. And I said, well, yeah, serving Jesus is exciting and delightful. But I think where I come from, what I'm trying to say in the paper is that we don't talk about the the cost of being a disciple either. And I was bouncing off that into the concept of cheap grace, which is if, if I don't think I've sinned much, then I'm not going to love much because I've been forgiven. But that idea that Jesus said that those who've been forgiven much love much so i've i've kind of been just thinking a lot about how does postmodern christianity that is becoming i think increasingly individualistic and consumeristic not demanding much of people uh a christianity that says come to church once a week if you can and then you'll just be there for an hour and then you can go home how is that an opportunity to really put into practice the one another passages of scripture where we're meant to carry one another's burdens we're meant to build one another up um, so much of a church service is relating symbolically, which is fine. But if there's no attendant spaces around those services for people to interact with each other socially, how do we actually do life together if we're not in some kind of long-term, low-key relational reality with each other and we're just going to an entertainment space in, in, in some cases? Yep. So I think that's a big debate within the Christian faith at the moment about... How, how high should you put the bar? I mean, I remember talking to Philip Jensen when I was young and I talked to him about this idea of starting a commitments group in our youth group where the leaders were best friends and if the kids wanted to come along and be part of that, the way they could express being friends with us is by learning to serve with us and actually having some kind of ministry role in the youth group because a lot of youth groups, all the ministry is done for young Christians. It's not actually teaching them how to minister and again, that creates a consumerism, I think. But to actually give young people roles and give them opportunities to serve, uh, to listen to their voices in the context of adult spaces, gives them a whole heap of equipment and empowerment. But it raises the bar and it does ask from them a bit more than just your regular attendance at a group. You know, it might even if it's a low-key service opportunity, it's still going to take them more time to do that than to just turn up to a group where everything's done for them. Uh, so... The person was kind of pushing back on that and saying, um, you know, things like, are we going to be using people if we ask them to volunteer for things? I think just seeing the the shadows of my idea, possibly, that the good thing I was suggesting about giving young people uh, an understanding that being a Christian is going to cost them could have some negative impacts mm. as well. So I saw it in that kind of framework. Mm. Tim, what do you think? Like, it's interesting that you, we're talking about you know, perhaps asking people to serve, but surely any type of serving involves a cost, right? Well, it, 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 yeah, it does. And it certainly requires a putting off of self. Mm, which is hard for people. Well, it, it is hard. And we're not, we are not discipled in that way by the rest of our culture. So the rest yeah. of our culture disciples us into putting ourselves first. We are the most important person in our universe. Uh, you should make yourself happy. Uh, don't do anything that uh, disrupts your equilibrium. You should always make sure that you're always comfortable. Um, don't put yourself out for other people. So that is absolutely what the message that we are told. And so when the church comes along and says the 
well, let's let's say the opposite. When the church comes along and says the same thing, uh, yep, God is here for you. He is here to make sure your dreams come true. And we end up, there was a sociologist a number of years ago who investigated young people in the American church and discovered that they had particular traits, which he then t- uh, entitled moral therapeutic deism, was the overwhelming understanding of God that people in the American church had. I think particularly young people was his research area. So moral therapeutic deism. Yeah, so let me let me walk through that. So uh, Christian Smith, I believe, is the sociologist who um, went did that. Uh, he's at uh, not one of the Notre Dame universities in America. And so moral. So God basically just cares whether I'm good or not. Um, and so it's, it's just about my moral life. Um, therapeutic in that God is there. God exists to make me happy um, and fulfilled. And feel better. And yeah. feel better. Mm-hmm. So uh, Christianity should only ever make me feel better um, because that's what God is there for. He's like a little genie in the sky. When I feel sad, when I need something, I can turn to God and uh, he will fix my psychological, emotional needs. And then deism, that deism is... Um, basically a version of God where he exists in the sky but he's pretty uninterested in your everyday life and he's not really working towards, you know, everything is not in his hand. He's not holding every molecule together and actively engaged in the world. It's more like he set the the world going. It's a little bit like the clockmaker analogy of God that he made the clock, he wound it up and then he kind of walked off and he doesn't have to be involved because the mechanics of the world will just work as it is. So this combination that God is interested in uh, my morality, God, good and evil, um, but he mostly towards the end of me feeling better. Uh, and also he's not particularly interested and he's not present all the time, but he'll turn up if I particularly need him. So this, this was the overwhelming um, understanding of God that was being displayed in these young people that Christian Smith was uh, yeah, researching. And... That's what happens when the, the Western church particularly uh, takes on too much of the Western ideas of consumerism and culture that, and we communicate that in a, with a Bible gloss, I suppose. Like we, we try and shape the gospel to say the same kind of things, that God is mostly there for our comfort. I like that phrase, God, what do you call it? gospel gloss. Bible gloss, what did you say? I don't know. What, uh, you have to read one tape. Bible the, Sheen. Put a, put a Bible lacquer on it. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Sheen. Yeah. Um, gospel gloss, I think yeah. you said. Gospel, yeah. Gospel, well, we, gospel, yeah, we put a yeah, gospel gloss, a gospel veneer, perhaps, like mm. onto our values. And sometimes it takes someone from outside our culture to help us to realise that we've got those values. And I think if people want to go back a couple of episodes and Stu, you were talking about the idea of suburban and anti-suburban, I found mm. that really insightful, the idea that we can actually challenge our suburban values with the gospel because the gospel is not suburban, um, which makes sense because it wasn't birthed in a suburban environment, um, but also no particular social structure is going to exactly match the kingdom of God. So we should always expect there to be you know, critique in whatever social structure we live in. And... I've kind of lost my train of thought, I think. Because um, I'm doing time. beads at the same time. <laughs> so that would be the negative. We'd be taking, taking that consumerist culture and putting a gospel veneer on top. I think what you're articulating, Stu, if I hear it correctly, is that 
actually the gospel calls us more than just the gospel veneer onto our um, modern 21st century values of consumerism and comfort. But actually there should be a cost. And that's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the fact that he is you know, in history, not too far down in history, you know, World War Two, but he's a historical character. And so reading his writings does help shake us out of our current cultural moment and make us aware of another option. Mm. And he does call us towards a radical discipleship where we do actually sacrifice for others. One of the things I find interesting, I was really fascinated by the intersection of um, theology and, and sociology and psychology, those kinds of things that kind of piques my interest. And there are particular um, takes on psychology where the things you have to work hard at are the things that you value most. Mm. That's and interesting. Yeah. Which again, I think ties into what we talk about with parables at the moment mm. when we do this series is the fact that Jesus doesn't spoon feed us mm. um, the kingdom message, but actually puts it in a riddle that you kind of have to think about mm. and wonder about. And it's actually hard to understand. Yeah, work hard. Yeah. We have to work hard at that. And if you work hard at something, you actually value it more. Um, and so I think it's the same here with discipleship and the value of community. If you have to work hard at community rather than just being spoon fed to me, then it's actually of more value. And I think we see this in the way that people have a lot of online community but are feeling deeply lonely. Yeah. And so that, that might be an expression of this, that online community is super easy. Uh, I can present myself any way I want. I don't even have to use my own name depending on the forum that I'm using. I can leave quickly. I, I can to. leave quickly. I find people who are exact uh, – mirrors of myself because they like the same things they're following the same pages or the same influences or the same whatever it is topic and it's really easy that kind of communities uh, but there's a lot of research coming out that shows that they're faux communities and the people even if they have a lot of online connections are not happy they're not fulfilled and they also feel lonely and the question that a lot of people are asking is how can we be so lonely in such a hyper-connected world and the answer keeps coming seems to keep coming back to the fact that these that incarnate relationships when we're actually with other people in the flesh in the room at the same time and working hard together because that takes effort that those are actually far more rewarding mm. that's really because i actually thought of a point to kind of bounce off exactly what you're saying and to throw this into the mix of what we're talking about is there something i'm observing lately is We've become, our society has become so comfortable and so interconnected that we think we're all comfortable that there is also this flip side or reaction to making things hard again. So, uh, you know, I think about, you know, in James, for example, it says that we were refined by fire. I think mm. God has made us, like you were talking about, Tim, working hard. God has made us to, like, things that we value, things that we work hard at, like you said. But we also, our bodies improve in a certain way when it's stressed a certain amount, for example, mm. like whether it's your mind when you're, you're reading something and trying to figure something out or you work out, but you have to do it for a, sustain, like a, a sustained period of time in order to see your body improve for something in particular. And I keep thinking about um, now become, because we become so comfortable, there's the things like um, uh, things on the internet or influences like cold showers which mm. I do, <laughs> but like fasting, uh, the carnivore diet, um, the 5am club, how early do you get up? Like all these things are actually, mm. we're looking around, we're searching around for things like 
actually we want things that are actually difficult. It's interesting. Coming back to the cost of discipleship thing, mm. I feel like I wonder if that's somewhere that we may be able to the alone TV shows where yeah. people you, people watch people trying to survive out in the wilderness. In the wilderness, yeah, yeah, that's <coughs> exactly. So we're we're in, we're actually thinking, mm. oh, we're actually have gone so far now. Yeah, that right. we're so we're perhaps even so sedentary, mm. and we sit in front of our TV screens and phones really and etc that we're looking for something that's costly. And that's I wonder really if that's how we can pitch, not pitch Christianity, but that's a, something that maybe people maybe find some appealing. A connector, like yeah. a starting point. Yeah, And that's appealing to someone. Yeah. That's really interesting, actually, because in the 19th century, groups like Scouts, when they first started, they were really vibing off, of all things, the Spartans. You know, the idea that the oh, Spartans yeah. were this group of Greek warriors that were, were tough as nails and they, you know, I mean, they were... It was a terrible culture, actually. Because like they, they trained like children from very early age to be oh, warriors and things 100%, like that. hundred percent, yeah. Like they, oh, all sorts of crazy things. And so there was this almost like a glorification of that era as a sense of if, and, you know, it was tied to imperialistic and colonialistic values as well, obviously, like this idea of conquering the natural world, like, um, you know, who was going to be the first person to climb Everest and mm. you know, all these. It, it survived into the 20th century as well. But it was really interesting to see groups like the Scouts where people actually went out into the wilderness to go camping and that was seen as actually helping to form you as a person, that you needed to have those Spartan qualities to be able to survive in this world and, and strive and grow. And we mentioned Bonhoeffer earlier. I mean, I think it was actually the fact that the Nazi... Hitler Youth actually, uh, that he responded so strongly against. The Hitler Youth vibed that Spartan ideal as well. Yeah. And I think that's what obviously put that whole um, metaphor in the, on the back burner in Western culture. So people don't, you know, vibe off the Spartans anymore. And I'm just thinking too that in the post in, post-war era of industrialization, where where there's so many consumables and there's so many labour-saving devices. There was a bit of an obsession with labour-saving devices so that we'd have more leisure time and we can have a vacuum cleaner instead of, you know, someone having to beat a rug for a whole <laughs> afternoon to get all the dust yeah. out of it. You just run a vacuum cleaner over it and then it's done, mm. you know. Uh, washing machines instead of washing your clothes by hands, which was only happening a little time ago, like beginning of the 20th century. People were scrubbing their clothes in, in you know, soapy water semi-warm soapy water in tin mm. tubs you know on a wooden you know device and then to replace that with a washing machine where you just press a button and go oh now i have the whole mm. day off i don't have to <laughs> spend the whole day scrubbing my clothes yeah. yeah i think there's been a pursuit of relaxation and labor saving in the second half of the 20th century and a celebration of leisure and happiness like you said and comfort so yeah it's actually come full circle and to see some things happening in our culture where people are actually appreciating that to give something up or to make something a bit harder actually has value i think the whole fitness industry is kind of vibing that isn't yep. it like what's that crossfit like that's one of those kind of that that seems very spartan although i don't think they would use that word spartan uh but um yeah i think you're right there like uh, but yet in the christian church i think we seem to have made christianity as simple and as um easy and comfortable as we can well, it's like and as attractive yeah. you know, the whole idea of making church warm and comfortable i think um yeah so it could be that maybe as a church we need to start embracing some of those more rigorous personal activities of 
spiritual discipline. I mean, people lament the fact that they don't pray much anymore and read the Bible and those yeah, kind of personal yeah. acts of discipline and yeah. piety seem yeah. to be on the wane. Maybe it's, it's a time for us to to actually spend more than just an hour a week going to church to actually raise the bar. Because uh, I think when you raise the bar, the people who are going to go just go earlier. But when you lower the bar, then the people who are going to hang around don't seem to grow as much as they could. Mm. But to be given a bit more of a challenge in the local church to grow as a Christian is a really good thing, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really good thing to think about. Is yeah, the discipline thing is something I think about a lot. Um, I'm trying. I'm, uh, I'm reading a book at the moment. It's a, a reasonably popular book called Atomic Habits, which mm-hmm. is talking about making one percent changes in order to improve and grow. And there's a there's actually a graph in there. It says that if you make one percent improvement in something. Uh, by the end of the year, you're 37% better than what you were at the start. Mm. Whereas if you don't, you only go, you probably only improve or get better 0.03%, which I think is interesting. So even if you apply that, for example, to your Bible reading every day, mm. not you can't put a value on that you're 37% better Christian. But I think it's a it's a valuable thing to start thinking about. It's like, what's the one thing mm. that you can change a tiny bit and for example, I try not to look at my phone for the first half an hour of the day because then I'm going to be tempted to spend time on it. And, mm. and it actually, I actually find that if I read a, my Bible, journal and a book, my emotional level is far, far better, mm. example, for the whole day when I have, mm. compared to when I haven't done that as an example. So I think there's things really important to keep talking about. Um, and I've to figure it's exa- but it's like what do you value again? Like is that hard? Like that could be considered hard work, but it's also well, what is most valuable to me. And I think if I'm trying to focus on my relationship with God and improve mm. what God wants me to do, then that's what's probably more valuable. So I should be doing that more. And I found in the last couple of weeks I've been doing that. It's been f- I've felt mm. I've just felt better, and I think I'm probably getting a little bit better mm. <laughs> at other things. But we'll have to see. <laughs> I just found some. Um, quotes from a guy i don't know if you've ever got a guy called david goggins he's like a former navy seal and he's like an endurance athlete and i recently heard him on a podcast and he was like the latest thing he was doing to challenge himself was doing i forget what it's called but it's basically firefighting but you get basically dropped down into the middle of the fire so rather than fighting on the outside you get dropped into the middle and fight it and just for three days, and then you get lifted back out. But apparently, it's it's effective to help fight the fire, but it's extremely dangerous. Mm. So you get helicopter helicopters straight in, and then fight. And then <laughs> it's crazy. And then he says, like, there's all it's these the next season of Alone. Dropping yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of the fire Under with the all the camera deaths, equipment. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. But there's a, he's got a book. Called, yeah. <laughs> We're not sure how this guy's going. He's got a book called "You Can't Oh Can't Hurt Me," and there's some quotes here, and it's like, "Pain unlocks a secret doorway in the mind, one that leads see, to both peak performance and beautiful I, silence." See, that's what I think puts people off that that over arch. Mm. You know, so, like, don't drop me in the middle of a fire. We're not talking about that. Like, yeah. I think the Australian way of putting a fire out is to fly a plane over it and drop water on it. I yeah. think that's really effective <laughs> as well. Not dropping people in the middle of the fire and putting it out, but. Um, uh, I think I think Protestant Christians also have sometimes a bit of a reaction against anything that sounds a bit works-based or legalistic, yet there is a bit of a harking back to some more traditional forms of piety that I think people are interested in exploring again. And, uh, I mean, your, your comment about, you know, small incremental changes, I think I experienced that recently. Um, I, I had a, a pretty bad knee and it was like I was thinking, oh, this knee's sore, I might see if I can go to a PT to see if I can get 
you know, build up my muscles a bit better anyway. And to start off with, when I first started meeting with him, I was just like doing the most lame exercises. Like, and I was even embarrassed doing them in the gym with these tiny little weights. And and my my PT was like, no, you got to start. You, you just start there. Like celebrate the start. And I was like, oh, I like that phrase, celebrate the start. That's kind of cool, a little bit, you know, a bit of motivational stuff. But cel- okay, yeah, I'll celebrate the fact that I'm not sitting on the lounge. I'm actually yeah. getting out and doing something. But then over the next few years, I've built up from those really small weights to being able to deadlift 160 kilos. Yeah, and like I was in, great. I was in a, in a session earlier this year. I'm having a bit of a break from it now, but I was in a session earlier this year and I was lifting 160 kilos on a deadlift and I put it down. I went, I can't believe I just did that. Mm. But if I just tried to walk into a room and lift 160 kilos, I would have been like I would have injured myself. Mm. <laughs> and maybe it's the same thing with Christianity. Like maybe we... The Holy Spirit is sanctifying us to be like Christ and the Holy Spirit is drawing us and asking us to partner with him as he makes us godly and more, more and more godly in incremental stages. So there is a scriptural mandate for what you're talking about there. And But the discomfort you feel when you come home from the gym and you, you get up in the morning and you feel stiff and you don't want to go and do it again and it's cold and you want, don't want to get up. There's a whole heap of excuses we give ourselves to not do physical activity. And I think we have those same excuses not to do spiritual activity. And I think, mm. I think we can wither away and become uh, quite um, materialistic as Christians if we don't actually continue to focus on what is unseen and lift our eyes to heaven and we get too carried away with the world. And the funny thing is about that is the more comfortable you get, I think the, the more you're opening yourself up for real mental health issues too, that there's something about the striving that actually is good for us mentally. And, uh, you know, just you know, just sitting back doing nothing, I think, doesn't make us um, happier necessarily. I mean should probably wrap up the episode but tim you got any final words on the is there one discipline that you enjoy doing maybe uh physical or spiritual or, or any i mean you're thinking about the deadlifts i for the last sort of five years i keep going in and out of the couch to 5k yeah. and i'll kind of get to 5k I've, I've gone up to 10 15k a couple of times and then i'll get sick and it yeah mm. resets me and i got re i got really sick um in June with that flu that was going around mm. and that just, I was close to getting up to 10K again and it just floored me. Yeah. And I'm, I've just started kind of building up again. But this morning, yeah, I'm having that exact same thing every morning. It's like, oh, it's freezing cold, don't want to get up. Um, but, you know, and I had to start from scratch again, almost like, you know, run for a minute, walk for two because you're absolutely puffed and you can't do anything. Uh, but this morning was... Um, you know, a five-minute interval, a 25-minute interval, and then a five-minute interval. And, yeah, it was tough, but I did it. And, yeah. you know, is that just that little incremental mm-hmm. idea? And I think that that's really good when you think about discipleship, when we think about ministry, spiritual disciplines, whatever it is. Like I often say to families, you know, if you're – I talk in cash to 5K terms. Like if your <laughs> family is not used to doing anything in the home in terms of spiritual – disciplines or spiritual life then don't aim to have an hour bible study with your kids around the dinner table every night like you're just gonna floor yourself it's just like and, trying and to them. sorry and the kids too. and the kids that's <laughs> right yeah it's like yeah you know, i mean if i tried to walk into a gym and lift 160 kilos i'd die because i haven't that's not <laughs> what i've been building myself up to and i just don't think you'd be able to lift it yeah but uh but doing like little 
little lifts, yeah. You know, and so I've, I've said, I say to families, you know, if you if you haven't ever done anything spiritual in your household before, um, maybe start with: Can you have one dinner this week mm. together as a family without any devices? And before you eat that dinner, just thank God for the food. Just needs to be mm. two sentences, mm. and that's it. That's all you do. And then that's your regular habit. You end up doing it all the time. You don't have to yeah. try hard to yeah. do it because yep. yep. if someone doesn't do it, someone says, oh, have we prayed yet? It's yep. easy. Yeah. And you build that up and then the next, you know, next once day, that's regular, yeah, you yeah, can say, right. oh, what if, what if, uh, you know, if you know, whoever finishes their meal first uh, then pulls out the Bible and just reads one little paragraph from Mark. That's it. Yeah, once a week. Once a week. Yeah. Just start with once a week. Yep. And so you just start these little things. And so I think those kind of disciplines, but it does build us into rhythms. And I think to come back to what you said about discipleship is hard. Uh, and this again, this is where my brain starts you know, getting really excited is you do have these non-Christian psychologists, fitness gurus, whatever it is, who are discovering that actually effort – Mm. Uh, is good for us, yes. and we've been made that way. I think, we, we, and, and yeah, that's exactly are. right. We're that's to, why we're made to work. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. Are. and that's why I get really excited because when I see those non-Christian psychologists and sociologists saying, "Oh, isn't it interesting that we thrive when we put in work effort?" Yeah, and then you look at the Bible and you see, oh, actually, you know, Jesus makes parables hard, or mm. praying discipleship when you're exhausted and tired and life is over-consuming is hard to make that time. And Adam actually, and Eve were gardeners. Adam and Eve were gardeners. Yeah, mm. there is intentional that we are effort, and so I do think that it is right for us as a church not to. You know, we don't. We're not, it's not works righteousness. We're not saying unless you do these things, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Mm. We're also not trying to make it so hard for people that they just go, "Oh, I, I can't do Christianity mm. because they're asking me to do crazy things." But you know, walking side by side with particular members of your children's ministry, youth group, adult congregation and saying, what's the next thing for you to keep growing um, as a disciple of Mm. Jesus? And again, because of the gospel, because you have been saved, because you are saved by grace and everything has been thoroughly done for you by Jesus on the cross, therefore, how do we grow in that, our knowledge, uh, love and understanding and obedience to you? And I think it actually ties all the way back to what we were talking about with meeting together for a youth group with leaders meeting together is like the habits are yeah, it's a good not point. keep getting trying to get the kids back, but we're meeting together. Build the leadership team first. Build that the might be the first step. Yeah, and build the habits that you're doing as like meeting every week as the mm. leadership team mm. as friends, and then we want to welcome yeah, younger right. crew into that as well. Yeah, so it's good. Yeah, and, and going back to the Jesus beads too, like maybe it's worth getting a set of Jesus beads and putting them on your wrist as a first step. You might not even use them to start off with, but you've actually got them there as a daily reminder mm. of who you are. Yeah. yeah. I think I've found that really helpful when I first had the Jesus yeah. beads as an example. Mm. Um, but probably, yeah, we should probably wrap it up. Cool. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, everyone. <laughs> everyone that's listening, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. You two, my favourites. Um, <laughs> 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 um, it's been, that was a really fun and enjoyable yeah, episode. episode so thank you, yeah. guys. Um, uh, if you do have any other questions or you want to challenge us on our habits or disciplines, that would be cool. Um, you can email me at joel at shockwazorba.com.au. You can... Of course, uh, chuck a YouTube comment on there if you'd like to do that. Mm. But, uh, yeah, thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you to producer Eck. Yeah, as, always, you, as Eck. always. Yeah, thank you for putting it all together. So um, as we finish this episode, we'll do it one way. One way. One, one way. way.